Coming up on Golf Today on Memorial Day, we are joined by veteran and World Golf Hall of Fame member Larry Nelson, about to receive a great honor at Jack's Place and find out how he learned to play golf at the age of 21. Plus, country music star and golf nut Jake Owen stops by ahead of the release of his new album, Loose Cannon. What's more fun, playing guitar or playing golf with Jordan Spieth? And we take you out to Arizona and Greyhawk for the NCAA Men's Golf National Championship where the top eight teams will advance to match play. Going to give it the old college try on Golf Today. Golf Today. Off today on Memorial Day, Damon Hack alongside Eamon Lynch. Hope you're enjoying the day, being reflective and safe on this Memorial Day. Yesterday, partner, I spent most of the day watching golf, watching Emiliano Grillo get the job done. I've been covering this game for 20-plus years. Have you ever seen anything I have like never that? seen any, the ball just going on the 18th hole, slowly down that lazy river. We're waiting for it to stop. Will it find dry land? Will it hit a rock? He ends up making double after taking a drop, hitting off of the concrete, and goes on and wins for the second time. It really did look as though his hopes were drifting with that ball. <laughs> down the lazy river but then you know Harry Hall hit it in the water a stationary water hazard yes. on the left as opposed to going on the right it just shows you how fickle this game is yeah just when you think you've seen everything in the game of golf you see something like that we begin this Memorial Day talking some college golf this week marks the 125th NCAA Division I Men's Golf Championships hosted this year by ASU. This is the last of three straight years. The NCAA Division I Men's and Women's Golf Championships are being contested at Greyhawk Golf Club's Raptor Course. So here is what is at stake today. It's the final day of stroke play, which means we'll crown an individual national champ tonight. We started with 30 teams currently at 15. And at the end of the day, we'll be down to the top eight teams, and those schools will head to match play beginning tomorrow with the finals being on Wednesday. So for more, let's head out to Greyhawk and welcome in Kira K. Dixon and John Cook. Hello, team. <laughs> Hello, Damon. Uh, pleased to be back at Greyhawk for another beautiful day alongside John Cook. Just kind of and stamps out, doesn't it? It's it, like dome golf out here. It absolutely <laughs> is. It's beautiful. It's not too hot just yet. So I think that we're in for an exciting day today. We've got the the finishing up of stroke play. We're going to be crowning an individual champion later today. Teams are looking to make it through to match play. Cookie, based on everything that you've seen so far, do you have any, any surprises, any takeaways? Well, what's really interesting to me is all these 15 teams, 13 of them are all in the top 15, you know, ranked uh, in college golf. So that's a little unusual. Uh, Georgia and Ohio State are 23 and 25. So, you know, they've made match play, but they or they've made the medal play. But they're going to have to shoot special, special rounds today to, to get into that top eight. So, you know, just the overall quality of this golf course presents a very tough challenge. And all these teams have stood up to that challenge. Mm -hmm. Well, there are a few teams that we think that are, are most likely going to be making it into match play. I'm talking about Illinois, Pepperdine, Florida, UNC. Let's start with Illinois. Uh, they did not make it to the championship yes. here in 2022. Uh, what do you think it's been about this team this season that's gotten them to a pretty dominant place? Just redemption. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that uh, they were embarrassed last year by not making uh, here to, you know, to the NCAA championships. And Coach Mike Small has really put together an, a tremendous program there at Illinois. It's not easy recruiting to a Midwest school, uh, a Big Ten school. So they've you know, really stepped up their game in the last 10, 12 years, been you know, someone to rec be reckoned with every single year. So they're hungry. They want a little bit of redemption. Mm -hmm. Well, what about Pepperdine? This is our 2021 <laughs> champions. Uh, they, redemption is not exactly the thing that they're no, looking no. for. They're looking at domination. Uh, what are your thoughts on Pepperdine? Ultra experienced. Uh, Coach uh, Michael Beard has four graduate students and a senior mm. on that team. It'll be a different team going forward, but this is their year. They, they've played wonderfully all year. They're, you know, really uh, has been a team to beat uh, no matter where they've been playing. A lot of experience. Mm -hmm. Well, a team that doesn't really have experience in match play is Florida. They've never right. made it through the match play for format since 2009. Uh, what has their biggest strength been? They really rely on uh, Fred. Uh, Biondi and uh, in uh, Ricky Castillo, uh, just because you know they're seasoned veterans, they're experienced, they're you know world-ranked players, uh, so they have to really rely on, on those two teams, uh, those two uh, individual players. 
And then for UNC, their programs have never had a national championship, neither for the, the men or the women. Uh, they've got some incredible players on their teams. Who, are, who do you think they're leaning on to, to possibly walk away with that first yeah, national Austin title? Austin Greaser really hasn't played well yet you know, this week. Uh, Dylan Menenti is a wonderful player. He can, he can put up scores in a hurry. He yeah. plays really quickly, and he can put up birdies uh, quickly. So they're going to be leading on, on those two. Uh, but there have been solid you know, top to bottom uh, every single week as well. Though there are a few teams that are a bit of a surprise that they're not in this conversation. I'm talking about Texas and Oklahoma. What is it about possibly their experience that they've had here this week that hasn't allowed them to move on yeah. to, to be o in this conversation? Yeah, Oklahoma was really surprising to me. It seemed like they were ready you know, to make an, a nice run. Texas is very young. Um, it, and uh, that inexperience, I think, showed up here uh, playing four freshmen. Uh, at, at the national championship, wonderful players, but they hadn't been in this situation yet. So I think um, you know John Fields you know, had put together a nice young team. Going forward, they'll be very, very strong. But I think the inexperience got them here. Yeah, and their coach also talked a lot about pressure and coming off the wind and having these huge names and then having to live up to that pressure their <laughs> entire year. Can, can you just speak to what that experience must have been like for them? This yeah, year? it was it was tough. And you know what? They they played pretty well. They had uh, they they had some wins. They, um, you know, really got uh, maybe a little sidetrack coming here with the, how big this picture was. But I think overall, I think John Fields was pretty um, happy with his, his team's progression through the year. A little disappointed at the showing this week, but they'll be, they'll be back in, in, in good graces and good form for years to come. Speaking of good form, let's focus on the top names of that individual championship, the opportunity to become national champions today, national champion today with a lot on the line. Yes. Let's start with Ross Steelman. Uh, last year, he had a really bad year yeah. here at Greyhawk, and this year it's a completely different story. If he walks away a national champion today, he will have an invitation to the Masters Tournament. He will be in that top five of PGA Tour U rankings, yep. which comes with a whole plethora of benefits. Just speak to his game and, and his chances today. Yeah, I think he learned a lot from uh, you know not playing well here last year. If you know if I'm Ross Steelman going forward, what do I need to do today? Is I, I want to set a score. I want to set a target. Uh, get to double digits. That makes the, everybody behind him have to play incredible rounds of golf on a very difficult golf course. So, Russ, I think if he's getting into double digits, stay away from the disasters, stay away from the big numbers, uh, and he could be crowned champion. Do you think that those other benefits are playing on his mind today? Of course. Yeah, how could you not think of the, you know, a, a Masters invitation perhaps and a U.S. Open uh, uh, start as well? That Get over that and go play golf. Mm-hmm. Someone that's going to be playing good golf today, possibly challenging him, Dylan Menenti, who you mentioned from UNC, transferred from Pepperdine. Yes. Oh, what do you think his new life at UNC has been like, and possibly his uh, the strengths that he's gotten from that transfer? So he played, you know, an important role at Pepperdine, played on that national championship team. So he has that winning experience at a winning program. Like I said earlier, he can put up birdies in a hurry. In a bunches, he can make a lot of birdies. So, you know, look out for that. And uh, I, I think he just brings experience you know, in, into a, a round like today. Mm. Now, and then Neil Shipley is someone that we're also paying attention yes. to. He actually had to come out here this morning for a playoff to yes, get Ohio State into the opportunity. I mean, they've got a big deficit to make up today if they want the opportunity to get into match play. What are your thoughts on Neil Shipley? Yeah, and Will can help with that by shooting a, a good round of golf today to you know chase that up that individual board. Uh, he's a transfer from James Madison, so he's a graduate student. Tons of experience as well. So uh, look for look for Will to shoot a good score today. He's the big guy. He's the big man, long hair. <laughs> like that of course a big Ohio State fan go Bucks yeah. Um, but yeah he's gonna have to shoot a special round again it's about trying to you know shoot a score at least get to eight nine under par nine unders leading right now gonna have to get to at least have to have a chance so you know what's in front of you tough golf course here Stay away from the disasters. Yeah, tough golf course today, setting up for a really exciting final day of the stroke play portion. We'll see who makes it through to match play. Uh, Cookie, very excited to get to yes. watch all of this alongside Love you it. as well. Can't wait to be on the call. All right, Damon, back to you. Juliano Guillo is 30 years of age and met the media. It was very emotional afterwards. The wait was definitely worth it. It was long, but it was, wait, uh, it was worth it, so... Um, happy to be a champion in Colonial. I get to put my name right next to Roberto De Vicenzo, which 
probably 40, 40, 50 years ago. So um, uh, I'm excited. Uh, I, I, I said it a few times that I wasn't going to retire without winning here. And uh, I'm lucky that I got it done in the last year before the renovations. So um, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. That's the way I can put it. Just talk a little bit about how your goals change now for the rest of the season going forward. Uh, they don't change. I'm going to try to go next week and hit the first fairway and the first green and make that putt. That's, that's, uh, that's my plan for next week. Uh, after that, I'll probably take a, a little break before I guess I'm getting to US Open now. So, um, uh, you know, uh, goals don't change. I'm going to try to get third win now. Eamon, a couple of things that I'd never seen before. One was the ball traveling in that little water feature away from the green, having to take a drop. But the second was Emiliano Guillo waiting for the playoff and inviting a couple of kids, you know, inside the ropes, as it were, where he was warming up for said playoff and letting them use his clubs. I mean, I don't know if it was a, uh, to release the pressure or just honestly say, hey, kids, you know, I'm, I got nothing to do. Why don't you come over and hang out for a little bit? It just means three people are going to leave Colonial Country Club with maybe the most memorable day of their lives. And Emiliano Grillo is only one of them. And he actually later took them in for a walk through the clubhouse as well. But this was a pretty cool moment of a guy keeping things loose, keeping some kind of perspective, especially given that he finished with a double bogey. Mm. Because we all know how many players out there would have been in there smashing up the locker room at this point, but he's out there at least encouraging the next generation of golfers coming behind him. Yeah, in his post-round interview with Amanda, he even said, I made double bogey and I didn't <coughs> care. I, I mean, that that's it's one thing to say, but I actually believe it considering what he did in the 15 minutes that followed, that he had the perspective, said being a, a parent, you know, they had a, their first child 14 months ago, and that really the golf kind of goes into its proper place on the shelf, and maybe that frees you up more than any, you know, short game lesson you might have from a coach. And he was also in a place where he couldn't actually do anything about it. At that point, he mm. was waiting to see if Adam Schenk was going to make that putt on the 18th. But this week was real evidence of how you have to be opportunistic if you're a guy like Emiliano Grillo. He doesn't have a lot of big weapons. If you look at the major statistical categories, he's inside the top 50 in one of them, and he's actually 50th. Mm in strokes gained approach. So he's not a guy who, who's going to overpower a golf course. He actually was 66th in the field mm. in driving distance this week out of the 72 guys who made the cut. But this isn't a golf course that necessarily lends itself to guys overpowering it anyway. And he, all he needed to do was outperform in the category that mattered, yeah. which was strokes gained putting. He was second in the field. He hasn't been better than 112th in the last mm. five years on the PGA Tour in that category. So he's a guy who... Needs to be opportunistic. He found his moment, and he was opportunistic. A couple of good breaks yeah. along the way. You could argue a bad break as well from, from a poor shot off that 18th tee. But he, when the opportunity presented itself, he took it. Totally kept his cool, kept his head, and another long drought on the PGA Tour comes to an end. So, folks, let's take a look now at the Comcast Business Tour Top 10, because with the win, Grillo moves up to 18th in the standings. I always look at these guys, a lot of smiling guys, and, and why not? The reason this is so important is since 2009, every player who finishes in the Comcast Business Tour Top 10 has made it all the way to the Tour Championship at East Lake in Atlanta, Georgia. So if players finish in the Top 10, odds are they going to make it to the Tour Championship later this year. Stay with us, folks. When Golf Today returns, we are joined by a three-time major champ, World Golf Hall of Fame member, Larry Nelson, proud veteran, and this year's Memorial Tournament honoree at Jack's Place. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 
Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle, follow your Crave. Well, the Memorial Tournament is at Jack's Place, Muirfield Village Golf Club in Dublin, Ohio. Every year, the tournament honours people who have made a historic contribution to the game of golf, and this year's honoree is no different. Larry Nelson, <clears throat> one of the most impressive biographies in the game, a 10-time PGA Tour winner. 33% of those victories were major championships, twice a PGA Championship winner, and the US Open 40 years ago, three victorious Ryder Cup teams, 19 PGA Tour Champions victories and inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame back in 2006 and we're pleased now to be joined by Larry Nelson. Larry, thanks for joining us. I'm curious what a day like today means to you. You saw combat as a young man in Vietnam, so while other people might think of Memorial Day simply as the start of summer, do you find yourself today reflecting back on, on guys you served with? Well, yeah, I always do. Uh, both my father and my father-in-law served in World War II. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, the memories are um, kind of good and bad. But, uh, yes, we celebrate this day for all the, uh, the people that lost their lives, all the soldiers that lost their lives. Um, and it's a really important day for us to remember. Larry, what was the adjustment like for you just as a human being coming back from the Vietnam War and assimilating back into society? It wasn't as difficult, uh, I'm sure, as it was uh, for our parents when they did. But, um, you know, you, you come back home and the next day you're eating at McDonald's or something. So uh, it, it just the transition, uh, I was so busy when I got back, I really didn't have much time to think about it. Um, but, uh, you know, for a lot of people, uh, the transition is difficult, uh, but I didn't seem to have that big a deal with it. You've accumulated a lot of honours in the last 50 years, Larry, and you've got another one coming this week. You're the honoree at the Memorial Tournament, Jack Nicklaus's event in Ohio. You're joining some pretty esteemed company on the list of honorees there. What does that mean to you? Well, it meant a lot. I mean, it means a lot, but... Uh... <laughs> When you get a call from Jack saying, uh, would you accept it if we honored you this year, uh, was uh, kind of one of the nicest phone calls uh, that I've received. And, uh, of course, I couldn't say yes quick enough. Um, so, yes, it is a huge honor uh, for someone who has meant so much for this game and the greatest player, uh, in my opinion, who has ever played. Um, and to go up to Muirfield, I played in the first one in '76. Pretty much played in every one of them until after I turned 50. So uh, for me, it, it just means a lot. And uh, I'm just very honored to be a part of this great event and to be, uh, you know, the honoree for 2023. You crossed paths with Jack Nicholas quite a bit on and off the course during the height of your power. When you guys speak now, what do you guys talk about? What do you reflect on? Um, well, I... You know, probably family as much as anything. <clears throat> a lot of his golf course designs. Uh, it's, it's uh, you know, just it's just kind of normal stuff. We don't, I mean, Jack and I never really had uh, kind of a head-to-head -head confrontation like he and Watson had at the British Open. Um, so most of the time he finished so far ahead of me, I never did get the chance to see him. But um, so I think it's just a mutual Mutual respect uh, when we get together. Uh, he does so much good work for young people uh, with his hospitals, his children's hospitals thing. Um, and we talk about that some. Uh, so uh, there's a lot to talk about, uh, but never really goes too much back towards the competition. Larry, today we're going to see the end of the NCAAs out in Arizona. And these kids look as though they've been trained for this moment or for life in professional golf almost from the cradle. You didn't start playing until you were 21, came back from Vietnam, broke 100, 
your first time out. Turned pro a few years after that. A couple of years after that, you were on, on the PGA Tour. It seems almost imaginable now that a career trajectory could go that high, that fast. How did it all happen so quickly? Uh, I think uh, I was a good, uh, good in a lot of sports, uh, especially baseball, basketball. Uh, so the hand and eye coordination was there. And it was actually just kind of learning the golf swing the right way. Um, ben Hogan said you could learn the swing mechanically in six months. And um, I kind of took him to heart in that. Uh, and I did learn how to swing and hit the ball pretty quickly, but it took me a long time to learn how to play. Uh, so I was able to qualify three and a half years after, qualify for the tour three and a half years after I uh, played my first round of golf. And, um, but I, it took me 10 years on the tour to really kind of learn how to play. Well, your first Ryder Cup, you go 5-0-0. Oh, oh, you beat Seve Ballesteros four points. What do you remember about that week and how you took out, you know, maybe Europe's greatest uh, Ryder Cup player, at least one of? Well, they paired me. Uh, Lanny went to Billy and asked him to take me, asked if he could take me, because this was my first one. And he knew that I did not play any match play prior to this. Uh, and so Billy said, sure. Take him under your wing. Y'all go out and play. And we just happened to draw Ballesteros three times. Fortunate enough to beat him three times. And then luck of the draw on Sunday, uh, I ended up having him in the individual match and end up uh, closing him out on 16. So uh, I never did like to get beat, even baseball, basketball, or whatever. And so um, it didn't didn't matter much uh, that it was golf. I still didn't want to get beat. Larry, it'll be 40 years next month since you went to Oakmont. And speaking of Seve, you were a stroke behind him and Tom Watson heading into the final round of that U.S. Open. You shot 67, ran both of them down. Is that your proudest moment in this game, or did something else top that along the way? No, I think uh, as far as the, the playing part of my golf career, winning the U.S. Open, <clears> anytime in your national championship, uh, it has to be put at the top of the list. Um, so I, I, you know, I just put my head down. I, I was hitting the ball really well. I was putting the ball really well. Uh, and it didn't matter to me what they were doing. Matter of fact, Watson shot 31 or something. He played really well uh, the last day, the first nine holes. And uh, I ended up catching him uh, on the backside on 14. Uh, and it just kind of worked out uh, to where he made a bogey. I made a couple of birdies and ended up winning by one shot. But uh, it, 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 you know, when you beat some of the best players on one of the hardest golf courses for, I think, one of the, <laughs> the, the most wanted championship, um, it, it really meant a lot to me. What about your first major in 81 uh, in Atlanta, uh, you know, in front of family and friends? I would imagine that would be difficult for some players, but did that inspire you in some ways? Well, I think it inspired me, but I'd won the Atlanta Classic actually the year before, uh, which was, you know, 15 minutes from where I lived. Uh, so I was not uncomfortable playing at home, uh, but then you know, having a four-shot lead going into the last day and I'm playing in my group is Fuzzy and Tom Kite, who um, no slouches as far as competitive goes. And um, so it was uh, kind of a nerve-wracking day, I guess. But again, when you're hitting the ball well, um, nerves doesn't bother you as much uh, as when you're hitting the ball poorly. Um, and so I, I, I played well, hit a couple of good shots at, at the right time, uh, ended up, I guess, winning by four. Uh, so I uh, didn't lose anything on Sunday, but it meant a lot. Walking around the lake there at Atlanta Athletic Club uh, with all my friends, family, um, you know, nothing can really top that for the moment. Uh, uh, so and winning, I, I worked in the system for two years, so winning the PGA meant a lot to me. Well, I know it's going to be a special week this week when Jack Nicklaus honors you at the Memorial Tournament. Larry, thank you for your time and thank you for your service. Well, I appreciate that. I'm looking forward to meeting some of the young kids. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about coming up there.
Swing into Seaside Golf in Ocean City, Maryland. Play like a pro at 17 championship courses designed by golf legends like Jack Nicholas and Arthur Hills. Tee off on sweeping vistas at Eagle's Landing. Savor the coastal views of Lighthouse Sound. Or see why Ocean City Golf Club is considered one of the Mid-Atlantic's finest fairways. Whether you're sneaking in a quick round on a family vacation or going all in on a golf getaway, fun is always in play at Ocean City, Maryland. Plan your trip at OCOcean.com. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. We're pleased now to be joined by Ron Sarak, who's been covering the LPGA Tour for longer than most of us have been alive. Ron, that was a, a pretty dramatic day yesterday in match play and throughout the course of the week at Shadow Creek. What was your big takeaway from the week out there? Well, let's take, you know, a big picture look at it. First off, I love what this round-robin pot system has brought to match play. You know, it used to be fans were faced with the prospect of maybe losing their favorite player after one round. Now they know they're going to see their players for several rounds before they get to the knockout round. That's a huge, huge uh, uh, jolt uh, in a positive direction for the format. Secondly, look at the semifinals. Ireland, Sweden, Thailand, Japan. Once again, cementing the LPGA's role as golf's global tour. And then you've got the winner. Uh, Padre Anurukan uh, becomes the fifth woman from Thailand to be a multiple winner, a multiple winner on the LPGA Tour. The growth of the women's game in that country over the last decade is phenomenal. Has it grown to the point where it is at least on a, even par with the U.S. In, in South Korea? I mean, considering the international crown was victorious, uh, Thailand got it done there as well. Yeah, they won the international crown without Anna, Anna Narukan playing there, you know. So, I mean, that's how deep it is there. Um, <laughs> I do think it's, uh, it, it, it's maybe not, it might be that third behind South Korea and the United States, but it's certainly uh, uh, making itself felt. Ron, Jessica Corda announced over the weekend that she's out indefinitely with a back injury. Nellie's also reported back pain recently. I know both of the sisters tend to be fairly private. Is there any prognosis or time frame you think on when we might actually see them back? No, you know, and, and my reading on this is, is I think they're taking a big picture, long term look at this. Starting with the Bank of Hope last week, there are 15 tournaments in the next 16 weeks. Starting June 22nd at the KPMG Women's PGA Championship, there are four majors in the next seven events. And it goes, it goes Women's PGA, Off Week, U.S. Women's Open, Ohio, Michigan, then Amundi Avion Championship, Scottish Open, then another major at the AIG uh, Women's Open. So, uh, and all that is running up to the Solheim Cup in Spain at the end of September, which I think the Quarter Sisters are going to want to be at. I think they're being cautious. I think they're taking a, a, a longer view of, of how they want this season to play out. And they know that there's some big, big tournaments coming up. Unfortunately, neither Corda's sister will be at Liberty National this week for the Mizuho Americas Open, hosted by Michelle Wee. How important is this tournament for the LPGA Tour, a new addition to the schedule? Uh, you know, there's so much good about this. Uh, uh, Mizuho Americas is a financial services company whose American operation is based in New York City. Liberty National is right across the river from New York City in New Jersey. It's had a FedEx Cup event. It's had a President's <laughs> Cup event. It's in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty. You know, it's it's uh, um, throws the LPGA into the New York media market, which is an important place to be. The tournament has a nice little twist to the format. 24 of the top junior players are going to be playing alongside LPGA players this week. 
And then there's the Michelle Wee West factor. Everything about this is a plus. I, I think it's a hugely positive addition to the LPGA schedule. There's another fairly prominent name playing this week as well, Ron <laughs> Rosang, making her professional debut. Obviously, the most accomplished, talked about amateur player of probably the last 50 years. What are you expecting from her this week? You know, I mean, uh, uh, to be successful, you got to not only have talent, to, to take that next step up, you got to have a lot of competitive experience. And you've got to have the maturity to deal with the media obligations, the sponsor obligations, all that <coughs> other stuff that comes along with being a professional athlete. And I think I think that Rose is well-schooled in all that. She's won at every level that she's played at. She's been in the media spotlight for a long time right now. I think she's very, very well-prepared to move up to the next level. Nothing left for her to win. Time to hit the professional ranks. Ron, we appreciate the time. It's great seeing you, and enjoy your Memorial Day. Talk to you down the road, my friends. Back on Golf Today, time now for Meet the Press as we welcome in our colleague Ryan Lavner and Golf Digest senior writer Joel Beal. Amy, where do you want to go off the top? I, I want to take Joel to one of the storylines of last week, and it, it was in its own way so predictable, which Joel had a great column in Golf Digest arguing that the Michael Block story took a predictable arc from folk hero to a lot of people telling him to hit the road. Joel, why did you think that story moved in such a predictable way during the course of the week? Yeah, I thought it was interesting that last night you had two popular TV shows in Succession and Barry, and, and both those series did something that's increasingly rare, which is knowing when to pull the plug. Uh, you know, the sights, sounds, memories that Block provided at Oak Hill were indelible, but instead of appreciating it for what that week was, trying to carry that magic over for a second straight week I think was just a mistake. Um, certainly the media were guilty of trying to milk Block for all it's worth, and I think there was a degree of overexposure to the fans. Like they got a little tired of it. I think Block's persona didn't quite help. Um, I mean, listen, he's not afraid to ham it up, uh, which I think was liked at the PGA. Most golfers rarely emote, and Block fans had somebody that looked like he was having the time of his life and wasn't afraid to show it. Uh, but there's a difference between doing that at a major championship to those same theatrics when you're struggling to break 80 out of just a regular tour event. Um, I, those comments he made about Rory and distance and having a world-class short game, that didn't help. Uh, personally, I think it's exactly that type of conviction and self-belief you need in yourself to compete against the world's best, but those comments actually weren't that copacetic with this everyman character we were also sold. Uh, but honestly, the biggest mistake was in playing so soon after Oak Hill was just a chance to pull the rug out from something that he had built the week before because at the heart of this story is just a club pro competing against the best golfers in the world. And by going out and shooting what he shot at, at, at Colonial, uh, you know, it, it, he risked becoming a story that was celebrated now became a bit of a sideshow. Laugh, what do you think? Because it seemed like one minute the golf Twitterati was building him up and then that same group was, was tearing him down five minutes later. Yeah, honestly, I don't really blame Michael Block at all. He had to maximize his opportunity. This was obviously going to be a short-term deal. I think he, he did something upwards of, of 30 media interviews between the final round of the PJ Championship and then when he met the press at Colonial. It, it's, it's smart if, if it's your part. He got an agent. You know, he's got a sponsorship deal now. He has to do everything he can to uh, kind of maximize the limited opportunity that he had. I think this is really more where the, the modern media is going. and it's a, it's, a, it's a byproduct of the system that we have now. We have a, a system where we're rewarded with likes and views and um, comments and, and engagement and at, at that also risks the athlete being overexposed and oversaturated. And that's where I think some of the backlash came from. So it was the perfect storm of a guy who clearly enjoyed the spotlight and wanted to maximize his opportunity. I also think it was a byproduct of the modern media age where we're so quick to jump on a story and then uh, apparently just as quick to, to, to kind of tear down the pry as well. Ryan, speaking of someone looking for likes and engagements and proving themselves quite good at it, Phil Mickelson seems to be picking fights left, right and centre on social media these days, particularly with Brandel Chambly. Is, are you surprised in any way at the belligerence that he's got going out there right now or do you think it's all part of the marketing of Liv right now? I think it's probably part of the marketing, and I've stopped trying to understand what Phil Mickelson's motives would be when he engages with the outside world. I don't know if he's uh, bored, uh, starved for attention, which I th certainly think is 
uh, a big one. He could be deflecting, particularly with the, the Billy Walters book upcoming. He could be trying to appease some of his bosses. Uh, he, he seems to be uh, selling himself as someone who is very much trying to engage in the greater good and helping out his teammates or his fellow live mates. Whom I think there's ample evidence over the past quarter century uh, that he is really just in it for himself. And so I'm done guessing what his motives are. Um, but I think he's also proven over the past year that he's kind of a duplicitous character. And I think everyone needs to be a little bit careful with what he says. Joel, speaking of duplicitous, I got an email from a source saying that the Liv is in the throes of a death rattle and that this will be, you know, the plug will be pulled in 2025, that MBS isn't happy. He was sold uh, that this would be something uh, to bring the, the sports world together. Then SI has a story saying, no, Liv is digging in and looking for tournament sites around the world. You know, what are we going to be talking about in 2025 as pertains to Liv Golf? Good question. Um, you know, obviously they made news the uh, past couple of days by announcing they're bringing on a youth, the YouTube stream back for a uh, pay-per-view uh, option. But listen, if you're operating from the premise that Live Golf is a business entity, which it's a debatable premise in itself, but the two serious revenue generators were supposed to be a media deal and franchise ownership and sponsorship. Uh, the agreement that Live struck with the CW network, I think, can generally be described as mixed. Um, Obviously, rather than a traditional rights fee exchange, the CW and Live are splitting ad revenue. Uh, who knows for how much, but just for context, the PGA Tour is believed to be pulling in somewhere between $700 million a year through their media rights deal. Uh, however, at least the CW gave Live a traditional platform to reach an audience, and that was important in trying to get some type of entities or individuals to uh, financially back their teams. That is everyone around Live Golf. Is, that is how their business model is ultimately going to work, is sponsorship and ownership and we're halfway into year two and that just hasn't come to fruition so if that's really the hurdle Liv is facing i can understand the worries about 2025 2026 and this thing no longer being around brian based on what joel just summarized as the, the current state of play with Liv, do you see a pathway imminently to some kind of audience traction In the U.S., uh, it's hard to see. I think internationally, uh, the Live Adelaide event was so successful because Live took uh, their tour to an area that was starved for attention and starved for high-class golf. And so I think if you're, if you're Live executive, that needs to be the model going forward. You need to be targeting those types of areas. Short-term, it's hard to see how uh, the American golf audience is going to latch onto this. Long-term, I do think there is potential. You know, free agency is huge in other sports. Um, and, and Liv seems to be uh, kind of buying in that model as well. The franchise model, kind of having uh, these captains and these owners kind of have home courses. Like, I think all of that is intriguing, but it's so far down the road. Like, we're talking a decade plus. And to Joel's point, you know, if, if the short term is not delivering the profit uh, that the Saudi backers want it to, uh, they may have no choice but to pull the plug before this thing could actually come to fruition and have kind of the long-term model uh, fully realized. Joel, over on the PGA Tour, Jack's hosting the Memorial this week. He's been somewhat vocal on a lot of issues, but particularly this idea of having no-cut events, which <laughs> are supposedly going to be what the, non, the designated events on the PGA Tour are in 2024. Tigers made similar noises about the Genesis Invitational. If you're a betting man, how do you think this plays out? Because those are two pretty powerful voices on this subject. Yeah, certainly anytime Jack and Tiger talk, and if they're, if they're talking the same language, you, sh you should listen. Uh, unfortunately, it does seem like the money's going to play out here, and no cut element is a business initiative. You're guaranteed to see a star for four straight days, um, which is if you're sponsoring one of these tournaments, that's what you want to have guaranteed. Um, the problem is, I think one of the beauties of the PGA Tour and just golf is its meritocracy. Stripping the cut basically weakens the very thing that gives what's on the line meaning. I think it was interesting, too. It's a bit of a self-owned by the tour because one of their biggest assets in their battle with Liv is that Liv can come across as an exhibition. By doing away with the cut, the tour is jeopardizing, even if it's just from an optics standpoint, looking like the very thing they're trying to ridicule. So I, I understand there's events that already have no cuts, and it will likely just be a handful of more that fall into this category. But if, if Jack and Tiger are saying these designated events are the events that are supposed to matter, there needs to be consequences. And I think that's why the cut is so imperative to have at these, have at these events. 
Lav, on that note, is the PJ Tour getting what it wants out of this new era of designated events versus non? We had the nice Chris Kirk, Eric Cole story. Emiliano Grillo wins for the first time in nearly eight years. Are you liking, as a journalist, what you are seeing in this new look PGA Tour? Oh, Damon, I don't think this could be described as anything other than a resounding success in 2023. And I actually think the potential is there for next year to be even better when you have the cadence of non-designated events leading into designated events. Players can alter the trajectory of their career. Uh, I think that's very interesting. I, I completely agree with Joel's point that this could, could be a potential own goal by the by the PGA Tour. I mean, Tiger and Jack know what, what the fans know and that the 36-hole cut brings finality. It brings intensity. It brings drama. I understand from a business perspective why you'd want your stars to be there for all four days, but having Roy McIlroy kind of listless in T42 doesn't really do anyone any good. I'm not sure why there can't be a mix of designated events that don't have a cut as well as some of the kind of player-hosted invitationals that could have a, a, a cut. I, I think it's all about how the Friday telecast could be presented. Right now, if you if you go to a PJ Tour event, you're there for all four days. Like, Friday doesn't really have an identity other than the cut. And so I think uh, it, it could actually go further if the way that it's presented on television was better and focus on that cut line as opposed to some of the players who are trying to get in position for the weekend. I think it's all about how it's delivered, and I, I believe that was a miss by the PGA Tour. Got to have some juice on Friday. A lot of questions still to be answered. Lav and Joel, thank you very much, gentlemen. And the avid golfer and country music star Jake Owen joins us now. Jake, you're about to release your seventh album, Loose Cannon. What's the creative process like for you at this point in your career, reinventing yourself versus kind of staying true to your roots? Uh, well, thank you guys for having me, and uh, that's a great question. I would say at this point in my career, I, um, I just go do what I do. You know, I think uh, staying true to my roots is what you said. I think I try to do that. Um, I think part of being an artist and, and, and making music in the earlier days, it's funny when you were just playing that intro video, that was the first song I ever released uh, in 2006. And so I've been doing this for a while and I'm lucky to have been a part of the community for a while, country music. And I think I'm just always trying to do what I do, which is uh, make people have a good time and enjoy themselves. And that's really what music's all about. Well, what you do is also taking you beyond just the world of music, Jake. You're part of a, a large group of high-profile folks who are part of the investor group now in Tomorrow Sports, this stadium golf venture with Rory McIlroy and Tiger Woods. What was the appeal of getting involved in that? Uh, well, obviously, you know, being able to be a part of something with guys like, like Tiger and Rory is always a big deal. But I'm always for just keeping the ball rolling and bringing more people, um, not only to the, the board of golf, but um, just bringing people into my world of entertainment and kind of cross-promoting everything together. And I, I love the idea of it. Um, I love the people that were involved. I think Bieber, Justin Bieber and DJ Khaled and a few others um, are also involved. And um, I just, when I had the opportunity to be a part of that and have my name beside those guys, I uh, thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, Serena Williams as well now to the outsider they're saying jake owen yeah he's like a, a celebrity so now he's into golf but you were actually into golf before you were into music take us through that transition from a golfer in high school to injury to picking up a guitar for the first time yeah i played as a kid in a bunch of um ajga tournaments and i <laughs> played in all the fj florida i'm a florida guy so i uh fjga tournaments and I wanted to play golf at Florida State, where my twin brother went to play tennis. And um, I went up there and ended up not playing. I had an accident, hurt my shoulder, had shoulder surgery. And my dad said, get a job. So I grabbed a guitar and started playing on a bar stool um, up in college. And it kind of went from there. And I lost track of golf for quite some time. I'd say like seven or eight years. But I'm back at it. And uh, I got my handicap down all right. So I can I can play okay. And you also play a lot with Jordan Spieth, Jake. You partner with him a lot at the AT&T Pebble Beach event. And we all know what this social media conversation is like when just Jordan's playing. It's kind of a, an emotional roller coaster for his fans. I'm curious what it's like being on that roller coaster with him. I mean, were you standing there when he was dangling over the cliff edge on the eighth hole at Pebble Beach this year? Uh, yeah, well, that was last year. But um, 
but uh yeah uh it was a pretty nerve-wracking moment i remember you know i was talking about this the other day when he walked up to that ball i was standing right next to him and i thought in my mind like no way no way he's gonna play this and greller his caddy said jordan back away from that you're not hitting it and jordan without missing a beat told greller to basically shut up and stand back and uh after the fact you could tell they embraced each other with like this caring loving thing of how big of a shot that was that day but jordan's ex explanation to me was that uh he already knew that it was pretty dangerous hitting that shot and he probably shouldn't have hit it but in that moment he didn't need one other person telling him not to so i think he just took it all in his own hands and he did it but the best part in true jordan fashion was that after he hit that shot and actually made it on the back edge of the green in true jordan fashion he complained about where it ended up <laughs> so, i heard you uh, I once thought, told a story uh, kind of a great story about jordan spieth calling a shot during a charity event with you many years ago and it's a shot that mere mortals wouldn't ever actually dream of calling what was it uh well he was the kind of guy that jordan is i must say first and foremost he came to my small town of Ear beach florida and uh, played in a pro-am that's been going on for, you know, 60, 70 years in our hometown called the Grapefruit Pro-Am. And uh, he, he came around there. He signed every autograph, took every picture with any person that asked. And we were on hole 13. And my dad, who, just like me when I was a kid, gave me a hard time on the golf course and was always jabbing me, uh, told Jordan, he said, how close are you going to hit this next shot? I'll put some money on it. And Jordan said, I'm going to make it. And he was about 135 yards out. And the entire town of Vero was there to watch him play, obviously, right? There was a great write-up in, I think, one of the golf magazines that said it was like the old days when Ben Hogan would come to the small towns and play practice rounds. And uh, Jordan told my dad, he's like, give me odds. I'm going to make this thing. And my dad said, I'll just, I'll put a hundred bucks on it. You're not going to make this this shot. And Jordan hit hit the shot. And within the minute he made contact, he turned kind of looked back at us with that little Jordan Spieth smile and kind of shrug he does with his shoulders. And he said, uh, might as well pay me. And it hit about five feet behind the green or behind the pin and spun back and went right in the hole. And I mean, there was probably 1,500 people that saw that happen. And it was pretty special, but not surprising because uh, he's kind of the golden boy, you know. Jordan Spieth doing Jordan Spieth things. So you've played all this right. golf with Jordan. Has he made you better? What part of his game, if anything, has rubbed off on you, Jake, since you've spent so much time with him inside the ropes? Uh, great question. I learned a lot from a lot of those guys. You know, I've been real fortunate at the Pebble Beach Pro-Am to play uh, the last almost 10 <laughs> years, uh, Jordan and Dustin Johnson and uh, the great one, Wayne Gretzky. And so um, – I would say what I've learned from both of those guys together is they're completely different golfers and they kind of have completely different mentalities. Jordan is a guy that wears his heart on his sleeve and wants to tell you about why the shot went the way it did the minute he hits it. And Dustin, I sometimes wonder if he even realizes like that he's playing in a golf tournament because he's just the he's kind of like playing with your buddy that just hits a shot and whether it's good or bad, he just goes and hits it again. And I think there's a benefit to both those types of golfers being very in tune with what you're doing and also being a guy that kind of rolls with the flow. Um, so I try to take a little something from both of them. We hear a lot of kind of weird celebrity golf stories on this show. Jake, this one, if it's true, would be pretty epic. Is it true that you once seven putted to lose a junior tournament to Hunter Mahan? <laughs> well, it's very true that uh, I didn't lose that day, but it was the first round of the Western Junior. They used to play at Treetops in Michigan. And my dad took me up there, and I was, um, from in my recollection, I think I was five under par going into the last hole, which was a par three. And my dad, uh, he still regrets it. He, he handed me an eight iron, and I think I was a little juiced up. And I hit the eight iron a little long and the green was kind of sloped back to front. Then I ended up uh, like six putting. I think it was, I made a seven on the hole and I ended up shooting one under cause I was 500 and had four over on that. So I remember signing my card that day. Then the lady's like tough day out there, huh? Cause she was at the top of the green. She could see what happened. And I signed for a 71 and, uh, and I was like, no, nah, not really just this hole, but he, Hunter Mahan did go on to win that tournament, the Western junior that year. And um, so, yeah, it, you know, I, that's when I realized that I'm, I was never going to be as good as these guys. And um, I just like to, you know, swing at it and enjoy enjoy golf. That's a tough defeat, but you're making the most out of this second career. Jake, thanks for the time. Best of luck with the album. Have fun hanging out with Jordan and Steph Curry and Jack Nicklaus at Memorial. Thanks, pal. Uh, thank you, guys. Like I said, I'm a big fan of y'all, and I appreciate you having me on. We're pleased to be joined now by Aaron and Samson. 
Aaron, I'll start with you. Your team, Cal Berkeley, narrowly missed qualifying for the NCAAs last week. What impact would that have had on your schedule for, for both of you guys had you actually been required to be at Greyhawk in Arizona instead? You know, I mean, it's certainly going to be tight if we're if we decide to uh, go play four ball. But I think no matter what, like we'll we'll be at um, Kiawa Island. Um, I think you know we'll just have to leave that same night. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really um, just thankful of how things uh, has shaken out, and uh, yeah, I couldn't be more happy to do it with my partner here. Samson, when you guys got the job done, you kept talking about the history, the importance of winning a USGA event. What does it mean to you and your life going forward? I mean, it really means a lot. Um, like I said, you know, our history, you know, people are going to remember us. People are going to see our names on the trophy, um, you know, 50, 100 years from now. Um, and it's just a really cool feeling. Yeah. Aaron, how did this partnership come about I know you guys obviously play on the same college team together but how did you guys decide that you were going to play together in the four ball you know so back, back in the junior golf days we we've actually tried to qualify for the U.S. four ball um, but unfortunately we didn't make it we missed missed out by like two shots I want to say one or two shots yeah we're pretty close um, this was like back in 2019 and uh, right after that, we uh, there's another there was another junior tournament. It's called the Greenwood Cup. And um, so I, you know, asked my partner, like, say, hey, like maybe we should run it back. And uh, yeah, because we got great great team chemistry, and I mean our our games are just really compatible with each other. So um, and then obviously this year our world amateur ranking is good enough to uh, make it um, to to be exempt. So we we just yeah we. we Decided to give it another run, and uh, that was a great, great decision. Exactly. Speaking of great, Samson, your par three play as a team was remarkable. Three under in that championship match. What was the philosophy? Because that, to me, was the separator and the difference in you guys getting the job yeah. done. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think strategy definitely changes a little <laughs> bit from the four ball. Um, you know, USGA event, the pins are pins were tough, um, even for the par threes, but I think... For the most, uh, for the most of the part threes in the final match, we were the ones going first. So, I just told Aaron that I'm going to go for the flag, and uh, we're going to have to hit some great shots if we want to beat these guys. You know, these guys were um, the guys we were playing against. Uh, uh, I mean, Drew and Drew, they were they were really good. So, I just knew that we had to put it pretty close. Well, guys, exactly one year from today will be the final match of the 2024 four ball, which is at Philadelphia Cricket Club in Pennsylvania. I know a lot changes fast in amateur college golf these days. Are you guys planning to be there to defend? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be in between the regionals and the finals again. But if timing works out, uh, I don't see why not. I'd love to do it again. So. Aaron and Sampson representing UC Berkeley. Roll on, you Bears, and congratulations, guys. Job well done. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much.